This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Bonaventure Chapman. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Bonaventure. Father Patrick, how are you? I'm great. Here we are. You know, uh, we're, are, we are ready to talk about today one of your favorite topics. Yes. To both my surprise and delight. But before we get into that, how has your Lent been this year? Been okay. Not the best in a way, but that's what happens when you, you're finishing a doctorate and uh, all the final reviews go in and also job applications and sort of stuff. So it's been busy with things, but uh, the nice... Wait, do you mean you have to work when you're religious? That's exactly right. Yeah, or at least you have to you have to certify yourself so that you could work. Um, so the... Yeah, so it's, so it's been busy, not as busy as yours, I'm sure. Um, but the good part about Holy Week is that whether you arrived well prepared or ill prepared, uh, you're all there That's and right. you're, you're caught on it. It's a bit like, I think, the Camino you can start in France or you can start, you know, a week out or something and everyone that last leg is gets a, That's right. gets the medal or the shell or whatever. You come right there. through to Easter. Easter doesn't yeah. wait for you to be ready. That's right. Easter but comes. The, lit- the Holy Week liturgies will naturally bring you along to the right disposition, it seems like, to Holy Week and towards that. So I'm looking forward to that because I've been distracted otherwise. Nice. But uh, how's your... Excellent. Your been yeah, so far? As you noticed, a uh, lot of travel. Yes. Yeah, I've not been, not been home in the house here much, um, which is both good and bad, right? Uh, good because I enjoy being on the road and I enjoy, enjoy the invitations and I enjoy the preaching that comes with that. Bad because it's all exhausting, and I don't pray well when I travel, and all those things are yeah. just annoying. So, yes, uh, I'm very happy to uh, to have arrived at Easter right, um, and to be to have Lent behind me. <laughs> yes, I think that's one of the great the learning part. So when you in college, when you have breaks. You, your freshman year, I think you bring a lot of books home with you because you think, I'm going to study. I remember bringing my big physics textbook home with me on October break or something, the short break, and you set it down in your room, and then you leave it, and then you pick it up when you go uh, back to the school or something. And as you as you mature in the years of college, you take less and less home with you because you realize you're not going to be doing this. I think something <laughs> similar happens with prayer outside of the, outside of the convent or the monastery or the cloister is that... You initially, when you're on, when you're traveling or something, you think, okay, I'm going to do the exact same kind of prayer. I'm going to get, I'm going to have the same experience and the same, same attentiveness. But the longer you're in, the more you realize, I'm just going to pray really horribly uh, when I'm not in the monastery, not in the convent, when I'm not in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. I just, if I'm traveling for a chaplaincy or something, and you're in a hotel room and you think, I'll do my 30 minute meditation here. And uh, it's just going to be you sitting there and not getting much out of it, in my experience. And then the difference is that you you become okay with it, and maybe later you get better at it. But initially, I was very frustrated at that, and now I just realized it's just not going to be good prayer when I'm on when I'm on the road. It's going to be prayer, but it's it's going to be minimal. That's right. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do what I promised to do because yes. I promised I would do it. Yes. It's almost like someone thought about religious life. And knew what it could do for you. Yes. yes. One person, though, how's this for a transition? Yeah. One person who received a lot in her prayer in religious life. Yes. Is St. Faustina. It's true. She did. Uh, dear listeners and viewers, this will come as no surprise that I am a big Faustina fan, but it 
Maybe I think it will come as a surprise. Oh, really? Yeah. I think well, she's a long stretch from sure. Kant, yeah. for example. She's, and maybe therefore necessary. If I didn't have her, I don't know what would be, what, I, what kind of person I would be. Um, although you're a, uh, you're a sort of devotee as well. I remember I, I have come a, along, yes. I have a divine yeah. mercy, the, my divine mercy image in my, in my cell is from you, which you brought back from Poland when you were visiting uh, a couple years ago. Uh, as a war correspondent. So um, I think it was, I mean, no, maybe Pre, it was something else. It was the first, no, it was the OG. Trip. Yes, right. You've been to, it was that, World Youth Day. That that's right. You, from Vagovniki. You've been, that's right. You've been a bunch, Poland a bunch of times. I've never been there, but yes, it's true. I have a, I have a devotion to St. Faustina. I tend to preach um, when I'm not in the, in the house. I tend to preach, I think, the way Dominicans preach, uh, except I quote Faustina instead of St. Thomas in general thing. So um, I think she's great. So, but it is, it is a strange, maybe it's a strange connection. Now you picked up devotion to her when we were novices though. Why was that? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I'll just go through. So when I got to the novitiate, um, I realized that all of you had what I've referred to as spiritual girlfriends. Um, (laughs) and by that, I mean, it's just true that men and women are different and that women, we should do an episode on female mystics at some point, mm. uh, women have an insight and a relationship with Christ that's different than men have a relationship insight into Christ, and yet both are necessary. That's why both are are essential for, for the church. And so it makes sense that those who are trying to delve in deeper into the spiritual life have to tap into both those insights and both those dimensions, complementary dimensions sort of thing, uh, the masculine, the feminine, mystical genius, you could say. Um, and when I got there, I had no... Uh, I didn't come bringing like a female mystic with me, really. And everyone else had Teresa of Lisieux or Elizabeth of Trinity or um, it was Catherine of Siena, this sort of thing. And uh, I, uh, I needed someone, but I, in a sense, had someone because I grew up in Buffalo with a, in a Polish Catholic town. And so Faustina was around. Like when I was driving the car and listening at 3 p.m., I would hear the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Um, and I had first found her just by happenstance in a Barnes Noble bookstore uh, when I wasn't even Catholic, just seeing the diary uh, on the end cap, as they're called, um, on the end of the religious section thing. And it always, it just drew me in. There's something about it. I think because I'm colorblind, red, white, the red, white, and black are the colors that I see well together. So I think that's probably what, what drew me into this sort of thing. But I met her back in Buffalo, and I think she met me, really. So, uh that started a relationship, even as a Protestant, um, although I wasn't that interested in... I remember, I remember walking over to the book when I first saw it and picking it up and going, ooh, Catholic nun. Now I'm a Calvinist, not going to do that sort of thing. And then I saw the same book when I was working at Barnes & Noble later after I'd converted. Um, same end cap. And I saw the book and I said, oh, I picked it up and I thought, oh, well, that's, I'm Catholic now. But I was open to that, ah... Uh, not really a nun, not going to do it. Um, so it was when I got to novitiate and again, found out that this female mystic kind of sensibilities, you know, I learned a lot about Catholicism in the novitiate. Um, so when I figured out I had to have one, it was just obvious that um, St. Faustina had found me. And at the exact same time, Father Gregory, um, I keep things in my pocket, so let me get it around. Yes, Father Gregory um, gave me a holy card uh, with her, with a relic, third-class relic of her with a prayer on it. And so I have kept this in my pocket and I've prayed every morning to her for intercession to make me a good and holy Dominican priest. It was a good and holy Dominican brother first, but now it's a good and holy Dominican priest. So yeah, so we go way back, we could say. 
Saint Faustina is a bit of a surprise, I think, because of her, because of the spiritual impact she had in the church. Mm-hmm. Like she's someone that you don't that you don't expect, right? Like your relationship with her is surprising, but also how is it that she has, you know, such an extraordinary influence in the church, right? Like, like she was not, it's not as if she was popular in her time. Well known. Yeah. That kind of stuff. She wasn't known. Mm -mm. She didn't do something that really contributed to the life of the church in a very visible way. I mean, her life was extraordinarily hidden. It seems to me as a, as one, as one of these sisters of, our Lady of Mercy. Um, so it was a very simple life, you know, a life dedicated to the core tenets of religious life. Even today, the mm-hmm. sisters of Our Lady of Mercy live a um, strict, you could say, religious life. I think mm-hmm. it's a it's a very traditional religious life. So so it's filled with the observances that that, that are simple. So the life is demanding in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wouldn't have allowed for lots of uh, gallivanting. Yeah. And, and, evangelization or the kind of things you'd think that would get the the message out there because it's not that old really this isn't like an old devotion um this is something she was born in 1905 uh and then entered in 1926 um received the first revelations of divine mercy in uh, 1931 Uh, the image was painted in 1934 and then she died faustina died on october 5th 1938 so she lived 33 years. The first image or the second image? Uh, this was the first image. Um, that uh, there's, it, there's lots of funny stories about that. It's the one that most people probably have not seen. You're probably used to seeing the second one because that's the one that was painted later um, and was the first one that was venerated publicly outside of um, Spochko's. Uh, Spoch- um, blessed, no, Venerable uh, Michael Mikau Spochko. Was the uh, was the priest who was her main confessor and really directed her, and he had the first one. In fact, he was it was kind of painted off him. Actually, he he modeled for it, if I remember this correctly. <laughs> um, but Father Andretz, the Jesuit, uh, brought out the other one and venerated that one publicly, and so that was the image that we tend to associate with with uh, Divine Mercy. The other the, the other image, but uh, Christ is very clear. Faustina actually didn't like the first image. She was ter- she was dis- really disappointed in it, and Christ says it's not the it's not the paint strokes, the brush strokes that are going to give people the devotion. It's the graces that matter. So it's the it that's where the image, as long as it has certain features to it, and especially the Jesus, I trust in you, Yesu Ufam Tobie, then that's the that's where the graces come from, not the particular any particular image of that. As long as it has all the elements to it, you could say. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this and, and maybe maybe clarify some of the things we bandied about there. Oh, so yeah. St. Faustina, in her prayers, receiving mm. locutions, right? Messages mm-hmm. from Jesus. Yeah. Uh, why does she write them down? How is it that she knows she's hearing his voice? What does she do about all of that? Yes, well, she's it's her, it's her, her confessor that uh, she's very... It's interesting, uh, Faustina, Faustina's Jesuit trained, you could say, or at least her confessors were Jesu- generally Jesuits. The model is, is obedience. So if you read her diary, which you ought to, everyone ought to, I suppose, uh, in ways, um, you get a strong sense about obedience to superiors. Uh, and that's very important to her spirituality, about knowing the will of God through the particular confessor that you confess to, your spiritual director, and your superiors, that the will of God is mediated through these very ordinary people in your lives. And so her conf- her confessor asks her to write these things down and to explicitly, he's very clear um, that explicitly underline the things that you that you are sure are from Jesus, this sort of thing. And then he's looking at these these notebooks and 
and carrying them around and, and judging them and that that sort of thing. So she she has these these visions start ha- again. Uh, it's uh, Chair of Saint Peter, February twenty second, nineteen thirty one. I think is the is the the first the first kind of uh, the first revelation you could say where Jesus comes to her and uh, and then she has this relationship. Mary comes in sometimes too, but she throughout these so throughout these seven years she's having these these things and she's taking him down um, and also he's telling her uh, things to do. Um, not what's nice about it is they're nothing particularly crazy. It's not like he's giving her a new revelation about any particular thing. It's not new visions of heaven or hell and this sort of stuff. It's, it's really a, a refreshing vision of what the church has taught about mercy and bringing out the, the combination of love and mercy and the necessity of these two, which of course in Polish turn out to have the same root. Mivo uh, chao and mivo uh, cherja. Uh, mercy and love have the same root, whereas we don't, in English, we don't see this. So it's there, but bringing out the relationship, it's a very Polish devotion that way, you could say. Uh, so the, she's reflecting and she's putting down things that are from her, from Jesus, and then she's putting down her own things. The diary is full, filled with her own reflections, just her diary. Sometimes Jesus is saying things. Sometimes it's beautiful prayers from her. Sometimes it's her reflecting on events. Uh, sometimes it's it's her talking about conferences. Sometimes it's her saying how her struggles are going, Lenten practices. The diary is a beautiful thing to have around because you can follow it if you want to know like what she's doing during Lent. You can just open it up and find out and get reflections from Lent or Trinity Sunday or you you know Corpus Christi that sort of thing. So it's a very this isn't like new revelation that everyone has to. It's it's her diary with these personal revelations that then you can step into and and examine and see if if they speak to you as well. I think that's my my experience. So can you speak to us a little bit about the symbolism of the image? Uh, listeners are probably used to seeing the image around in confessionals, and yeah. you know stick on stickers that are on the back of Polish grandmothers' cars. Yep. Uh, Little, uh, wherever you can find the image, you can find the image all over the place on the front of copies of the diary. Yep. <laughs> uh, yep. The, for uh, example. Yeah. yeah. See, Although that's the older. Over. That's the first image on that. Uh, diary. Yeah. Oh, Vilnius. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, so, what, what is, what is some of the significant yeah. parts of the image? Because there are many depictions of Christ. So, why is Saint Faustina's received image mm-hmm. of Jesus uh, significant? Yeah, it's a it's. I was taught by uh, Sister Gaudia, who um, you can find on an episode on this, as we Father Joseph Anthony and I did one with her, um, how to read the image correctly in this way, and is to work from top to bottom. And you start off with the eyes, the merciful gaze of Jesus. So the merciful Jesus gazes at you. You're drawn in by these eyes, this sort of thing. Uh, and then as you walk, work down, you notice he's got one hand in blessing. And if it's that, <laughs> I think there's a, like a gif or a jif. I think it's a gif. Um, where he's like, he's got the blessing hand on the move. Um, so everyone's probably seen that. Um, so you have, there's a hand in blessing. Um, then there's the other hand is, is on the heart opening up to, to reveal, uh, his heart, which is then has two rays coming out from it. One pale or white, one red. Um, and those represent, he says, uh, the passion and baptism. So white for baptism, uh, and, and red for, for the passion. Uh, and these are the saving the means of salvation, this sort of thing. Uh, and then as you walk down, you you notice at the foot, there is, of course, Jesu Ufam Tobie, Jesus, I trust you. I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you, which is the kind of motto he tells her. This is on, again, February 22nd of 1931. He, he appears in this way to her and says, inscribe this in the bottom. The Divine Mercy image itself has to have that inscription. And so you're you're moving from, from his face to 
whom you 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 feel att- attracted to, but you feel not worthy, and then you realize he's coming towards you. He's also stepping forwards towards you with a blessing hand, and through baptism and this the the blood, the passion, and then you respond, not by doing anything, but saying, "I trust in you," and that's a mantra or kind of. A, Something you can say over and over again. It's like the Jesus prayer, I find. Right. Yeah. Right. And it bring and it will call forth the image, and then he you has a sort of disposition towards graces because of the rays. I mean, in one way, the image is an exceptionally traditional image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the rays showing the blood and water which flowed yeah. forth from the side of Christ, which the church fathers and sure. every uh, significant Christian theologian since has argued is the source of the wellspring of the sacraments, right? Yes. Taking us back to the passion of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. But the divine mercy image is interesting because it's not the suffering Christ mm-hmm. in that way, right? This is this isn't Jesus crucified. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks to me like it's Jesus risen, mm-hmm. right? But yes. with all the evidence of the passion there. Yep. All uh, the marks. So the, so so it's important that it shows us that mercy is coming from the cross. Uh, but doesn't terminate in the cross, right? Leads to life with the resurrected Jesus. And I, and I think you were getting mm-hmm. at that theme, which I was surprised mm-hmm. was such a critical part of the understanding of the sisters of the of divine mercy, that divine mercy is incomplete without the emphasis on trust. Trust is yes. really at the core of this. So so why is that? You know, mercy and trust seem different categories. Yeah, that's right. Well, mer- I think mercy is the deep, the descending aspect, that's how God acts, is is being merciful. So the famous, of course, God's greatest attribute, my greatest attribute is mercy. This is Diary 301. Um, and so that he always acts towards us with mercy because uh, because of our sin, and we need not just love, but love and a particular determination, which is mercy. Um, but our response is, is in trust. So our response is, of course, in love and return, but it's in in the trust entrustment uh, to him to do his work. Most importantly, because his mercy comes in strange ways. This is very important for Faustina. She she's not having these these images, these uh, visions uh, and revelations, and feeling great. Hmm. She's actually living a life of, of tremendous suffering. She dies, of course, very young, hmm. and spends the most of the diary of much of the diary is written in in a in a sanitarium in a in a hospital and in a bed. She's always she's she's suffering. She's in great suffering, and a, a great there are these great moments in the diary where she hands that over, where she says she makes and this is twelve sixty four. I think it's the number the act of oblation after she says I, I feel lost. I feel desperate. I feel like I I'm, but whether I live for a long time to a ripe old age, be blessed. Whether I die young, be blessed. Whether I'm known, be blessed. Whether I'm I, I misunderstood, be blessed. She has this entrusting whatever your will is. Again, it's the it's the trust is you could say the loving aspect of obedience, because we can obey out of just our will uh, because we have to or what have you. But the obedience has to be a loving obedience, and I think trust is the best way to describe that. When you trust someone to lead you or to direct you or to do something. You're obeying them, but with a willing heart, you could say, hmm. as opposed to just obeying traffic laws. I don't trust in traffic laws or sort of things. I, I just obey them. You know, I love obeying them, but uh, but I obey them. But trusting, when you trust, you trust a person, and the obedience becomes an act of love through that. I think that's my 
That's my suspicion. You'd have to ask a sister uh, of Our Lady of Mercy who would really know all this stuff. I'm I'm a neophyte uh, mm-hmm. in this. Now, Jesus uh, said to Faustina that his mercy would be like a spark in Poland, right? That would spread throughout the world. Sure. Uh, I think it's fascinating the way the Lord was at work here, right? Uh, you know, so so Jesus presents these uh, presents this understanding of himself, presents this teaching on divine mercy in the 1930s in Poland, right? And then we have the the horrific events of World War II, which follow, right? And yeah, um, she dies right then before. in Poland, and in Poland, you know, centuries or not centuries, but decades that are that are just as difficult as as the the war era. Um, for, for the Polish people. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the timing of all of this and how divine mercy has just been, been present um, or how you've seen it in the 20th century? Yeah, that's a, I mean, you have seen this stuff firsthand more than I have since you've been over there a few times, but it is interesting uh, that she dies right before World War II and Poland's, um, you know, I mean, the invasion of, of Poland mm. um, uh, by, by Germany, and, and which starts off a horrific experience um for the 20th 20th century but through that mercy through this kind of this polish commitment this entrusting to him even despite all of the the persecutions under first under the nazis but then under communism of course um you have i mean all-star john paul ii of course who is the one who reopens because initially uh, a faulty translation of her diary is given to rome and it's put on the index, so uh, she's in, the devotion is is uh, is banned because of the because of some tr- faulty translations. Interesting enough, and he's the one who, as as a as a cardinal, I believe, when he's a cardinal, um, reexamines, opens it up in the late '60s, I think, um, to have him look again because he's very attentive to her and to the the, mes- the mercy because of coming through hmm. the struggles there uh, in their in in their country. And he's the one who beatifies, of course, and then canonizes her. So he, so uh, Pope Saint John Paul II is the one who's driving mercy, uh, and is the result, in a sense, of Poland's uh, the blood of the martyrs that becomes the seed of the Polish Church for the 20th century and the 21st century, you could say. So that's the connection between the two of them. I mean, Dives et Misericordia is one of his, his early encyclicals. Uh, is is written with Faustina, like looking over his shoulder. He says he feels very close to her when he's writing this sort of thing. Um, so he's he's very he's very much connected to this. And I think the Pol- I mean, you you've experienced Polish people. I assume Polish people, Faustina and John Paul II, two 20th century twentieth century Catholic giants. I mean, t- to produce to, for one country to produce those two people. Right. I think this is one this is one thing that that's very relevant, right? People are people are often distressed at the things they're seeing in the church or the ex- mm-hmm. our, the experience of our culture. And the reality is that in such times God does the same thing he's always done, which is to raise up great saints. Yeah. Francis of Assisi and Dominic Guzman were saints in part because their age was such a disaster. Like yeah. the, the, the 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 world needed Francis and the world needed Dominic in a way that raised up their great orders in the same way that the world needed Faustina and needed Wojtyla in the 20th century um, to to be raised up by them. So how did we get from this experience of of Faustina, namely Jesus speaking to her, revealing the image to Divine Mercy Sunday? Yeah. Because now we we have a kind of particular observance and expression of this in the life of the church. Obviously, John Paul II has his hand in it. He died on Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, Yeah. 
Yep. He, so he, he uh, this is something that Jesus reveals early on to Faustina, that he wants a feast after after Easter, the Sunday after Easter. Again, as you mentioned, the res, this is a resurrected Christ who's coming from after the Passion and, and is coming to people in, with, in mercy with the marks of the Passion. And he wants a special a feast to celebrate his 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 mercy that had happened at Easter, uh, the Passion Passion Tide during that. During the, the holy holy days of the Passion and the Resurrection of Christ, a special feast that everyone can become rededicated to this. And there was, of course, this is, in some ways, again, ever ancient, ever new, there was a kind of mercy devotion before. You could have the Sacred Heart of Jesus discussion about this, Mary Olico. Um, and there is the kind, and there was even a feast of mercy kind of. So when, initially when he asked for this, um, some of the priests said, well, we've already got, there's this kind of mass. And it's like, no, he wants, he wants a real one. He wants the big deal. This has to be a real Sunday. Uh, so it took a while for that to, to come up, but of course JP2 um, institutes that, and as you say, uh, passed away on, on on the vigil, I think, of Divine Mercy Sunday, and now it's it's the second Sunday, so it's the first Sunday after Easter, um, and it's a great kind of, you could say, a, a reminder of the events of Easter. It's kind of like a recap, uh, and that that is now applied to us, because Easter, you get caught up, I think in, in Easter... And the Passion, of course, Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter, you're focused on Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. Uh, and then Easter week, you're hearing readings from, you know, the early, early uh, resurrection experiences, still on Christ. And then Easter, the Divine Mercy Sunday is nice because it's a turn, like, right, he, he didn't just do that for a show for himself. Like, hey, you want to, you know, tell me Christ's son didn't go to the Father. Like, I bet I could do this. You know, Holy Spirit, help me out. They, he, the Passion and the Resurrection are because of his love for us. And so it's it's fitting to turn now in Divine Mercy Sunday to realize all these things we've been celebrating are because we needed it, because we're sinners, and because he has a great love and desires us. This is the other thing about the, the diary, which is beautiful, is when Christ is talking, he's not giving new revelations all the time. He's, he's saying how much he desires souls. He thirsts for souls. This is language. He loves people. He loves sinners, and the only thing that's keeping them from turning to him is them. One thing I've been thinking about recently, Father Bonaventure, is that in our world, we talk about divine mercy. We say the church is merciful. We tell the story of St. Faustina, and it's it's pretty broadly uh, accepted. People have experienced mercy in mm -hmm. the confessional, and they're aware and excited about this. But in our age, it seems to me there are a lot of people whose gut word for the church that you know their their main impression of the church is not merciful you ask people what do they think of the catholic church and the word they say is not mercy and they say yeah. lots of lots of other dark words yeah so how do you think divine mercy um or how can our expression of divine mercy as understood by saint Faustina, help us to address this question of our day which is that the people don't think of the church as merciful or as a teacher they think of the church as oppressive and mm -hmm. um restrictive yeah, I think the key, of course, is going to be the Christocentric, the Christ-centeredness of this sort of thing. You could think, oh, uh, the church, if it wants to be more merciful or be received as more merciful, it should be more merciful and should be doing acts of mercy. And yes, 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 yes. But acts of mercy without the merciful Jesus aren't merciful. They're just acts. And so the divine mercy focuses on, yes, God's mercy and his love, but it, it is a concrete, Christocentric, 
Christ from the cross, love. It's, it's blood and water pouring from his side, which was suffering, and it involves our trust. That's, I think, the image. It's all tied in the image here that the church is merciful, but you're going to have to trust. You see, if it was just obviously merciful, if mercy always looked like great things and everything always worked out for us and it was, there was no suffering and no, no, so no one saying you oughtn't to do that or, you, you know, that sort of thing, um, there'd be no need for trust. I don't need to trust you if I know where you're going and what I'm doing. Uh, and, and I want to do that. I don't need to take you, ah, don't, this doesn't sound like a good idea, Father Patrick, but I'll trust you on it. That kind of handing your, yourself over to someone is the element of mercy, that divine mercy image, and that Faustina wants to remind us about, that yes, the church is merciful, but you might have to trust a little bit to get that, to make sense of it. That you might not make sense initially what's happening in your particular situation, or in the world even, uh, but that you trust because you see him. Again, look at his face, look at the gaze, look at the marks in his hands, and you say, if he's done this, I can trust that. And it has to be true for us in the religious life and us in the, in the hierarchy, too. We have to realize that it's, we, we need to trust him and what he wants us to do and not what we want to do. So it's a matter of being obedient through loving trust, but it's a good reminder that mercy has a face and a shape and an image uh, and it has, and it has, and it's responded with in trust, and not just some reception of, of of good things necessarily. Do you have time for one more? Sure, we've got a minute. Perfect. Uh, what is your favorite quote from the diary? Um, you know, I love, um, I love the favorite. I'll give you a favorite story of the diary because the quotes I can memorize the whole thing. But I think it's nine sixty four. Um. Uh, Faustina is, 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 she's sick, and so she can't do major penances. She, she says, uh, uh, Jesus, I want you to convert and save one soul for every stitch I, uh, I sew. I'm knitting today. She's knitting. Do needlework. And he says, my daughter, uh, that's, that's a lot for a little. Um, and uh, she has these great conversations back and forth, and it's beautiful. And she says, yes, Lord, I know it's not much, but I'm not able to do great penances because you put me here. This is all I can give. And, you know, you did spend much of your life doing humble service, and that was an act of, the, of, of, of saving and salvation, the axio et passio, the actions and the passions of Christ the whole life. So I don't think it's too little if it's done with great love. And he says, all right, yes, my daughter, I will do that. And so she just stitches away. But that, I love that image of, one, the kind of back, the, the back and forth so she's, it's just a sort of Jesuit model, right? I'm obedient, but I'm also going to argue with you a bit <laughs> because she loved their friends. They're, 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 they're friends. So they can, they can talk back and forth, but two, the great trust in and realization that it is in, in the act, it's the love that matters in these acts and that he can use even the littlest thing if we intend it and to offer to him, uh, as helping bring graces to other people. We just don't always think about that. So I love that's uh, that. Perhaps is my favorite uh, quote passage in in there is the is the the fight over uh, needle stitching. Fantastic. Well, I can honestly say that I haven't done that lately with the Lord. <laughs> Fought with Him over my needlework. Yeah, that's probably but, for the but best. It, but it, but it is it is inspiring, right? All of us have these conversations with God, right? Where where we t- where we tell Him what what really is 
on our hearts and to hear mm-hmm. to hear Faustina's experience of that con- that kind of confirmation from him is absolutely encouraging. Yes. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of God's Planning. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description. You can also follow the links in the description to shop God's Planning merch and to get information on upcoming God's Planning events. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Know of our prayers for you, and we ask that you would pray for us. God bless. Mm-hmm.